Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thanks for joining me this Thursday, February 23rd. Uh, Something came together late last night. I want to share it with you. Today from 2.30 to 3 p.m., we will be talking live to Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. I told you we have been interviewing all the different candidates who want to be the next mayor. Um, this is something that we have been working on behind the scenes. As you can imagine, as it gets closer to Election Day, things get crazier and crazier. But last night, uh, the Lightfoot campaign did confirm for us that she will be joining me today from 2.30 to 3. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to text me, 773-763-9278. Do you have this memorized now? (laughs) 773-763-9278. Text me. Any question you want me to ask, any topic you want to make sure I touch on, I don't think I'm going to open the phone lines because I've got a lot of of ground to cover with her and 30 minutes really isn't all that long. We are going to skip the 245 commercial break, but still, I think that um, I think we are going to have no extra time to take calls. If you want to call in between now and 2.30, and talk to me uh, about the mayor mayor's race, even if it's not about Lori Lightfoot. Um, do you live in the city of Chicago? Have you decided who you're going to vote for? Do you live outside of the city of Chicago? And anything about this mayor's race has really uh, stood out for you. 773-763-9278. Lady B is back at the studio. We will take calls you can talk to me up until 2.30. You can still also text during that time period, but once we start our interview with the mayor, we are going to close the phone lines and texting will be the only way that you can contribute to the conversation at that point because we just, trust me, (laughs) you know, I am... Oh, my gosh, we're already (laughs) getting texted questions. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, You know, some of these are pretty good. Yeah. Okay. I will attempt to get this worked in to our conversation. Um, But if you live in the city of Chicago, I'm very curious. Have you voted? Who did you vote for and why? Today is Thursday, and Thursday is when Eric Zorn, former Chicago Tribune columnist Eric Zorn's Picayune Sentinel newsletter comes out. He has been writing about the mayor's race, and he's been talking quite openly about how he doesn't know who he's going to vote for. Well, he says in today's issue that he and his wife Joanna went to vote on Tuesday because they are going to be traveling next week. And he said that on the way to the polling place, he and his wife were still discussing and debating who to vote for. I've joked on this show that every candidate has a poll that shows them in first place. 
But what is really interesting about every candidate poll and every independent poll, the largest group of voters in every poll is undecided. Who's going to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago? Undecided has it. There are so many undecided voters that that literally if all those undecideds went for one candidate, that candidate would without question, make it to the runoff. So at this late date with so many undecided voters, what do you do? What do you say to get them into your camp? I will uh, share this a little later with the mayor, but um, Eric Zorn, as I said, he and his wife were still debating or he was debating with her who he should vote for. He said that he goes through each of the candidates, what's he, what he likes about him, what he doesn't like about him. And when it came to the mayor, he doesn't like her attack ads on Garcia. He thinks they're a little bit sleazy. And he doesn't like her abrasive style. He thinks that she's gotten in her own way, that while she has, has achieved some things, that that style is counterproductive to really achieving her goals. And he didn't want to vote for her for another term. Who did he end up voting for? Chewy Garcia, even though, even though this is how he describes Chewy Garcia, mealy mouthed, uninspiring, weak sauce, anodyne, gives evasive answers to questions. I know right now you're shaking your head and you're going, so that's the guy he voted for. There's one reason. Like a lot of people on the left. He doesn't want Paul Vallis to be the next mayor. So even though there are pluses and minuses for all of the candidates running, he particularly voted for Chewy Garcia for one reason and one reason only. He thought he would be the strongest candidate to go up against Paul Vallis. Everybody, if Paul Vallis doesn't make it into the runoff, it's going to be one of the biggest political shocks of recent memory because every poll shows him a front runner. But he is a lightning rod for many groups. And I don't think Eric Zorn is alone especially among the people who don't want to see Paul Vallis as the next mayor. I don't think Eric Zorn is alone in saying, okay, let's look at the rest of this lot. Who do I think has the best shot? Who can go toe to toe with Paul Vallis? That's who I'm going to vote for. Not the smartest, not the most well-spoken, not somebody with the best programs or the best ideas. Who the hell can go up against Paul Vallis and win? I think that's a yardstick that an, a surprising number of voters are going to be using. I mean, particularly voters who uh, consider themselves, label themselves progressives, are up in arms about the candidacy of conservative Democrat. And, you know, he's not ashamed of being a conservative Democrat. He is a conservative Democrat. He's not a Republican, but he is a conservative Democrat. And in a lot of places, that kind of rankles. So uh, we're going to be talking to Lori Lightfoot from 2.30 to 3. 
Um, if you want to call in now, and I see a number of people have called in, and the text line is burning up. I'm going to see if I can keep up with all this. Um, let's let's go to the phone lines. Um, Gregory is on the phone lines. Hey, Gregory, thanks for calling in today. Good afternoon, Ms. Esposito. I know you instructed me to shoot you a text when I confronted Jamal Green about his very negative attack of Brandon Johnson being a fraud for not really being from the hood, but I'm 63 and I'm no digital native, and I think I've just finally mastered the art of texting, but I did just wanted to call in and tell you that I spoke to a Cook County Board Commissioner uh, staff member for Mr. Johnson, and she informed me that he is 46 years of age, and he came to our great city 20 years ago, and he's been living in, I think has been listed the second most dangerous neighborhood in America for the last 13 years, that being Austin. It goes back and forth with Inglewood. Of the 25 most dangerous neighborhoods in America, we have like five or six of them in Chicago. So I think uh, that qualifies for being a part of our community. He's more Chicagoan than me. I don't have any children. He's produced native Chicagoans and raising them in Austin. Uh, And so I would say that means that that was a cheap shot from Jamal Green. I was so disappointed that he did that, and that's all I have to say. There you go. Uh, thank you. Thank you for that call, Gregory. By the way, um, while I will be talking to the mayor uh, today, of course, from 2 to 2.30, um, I want you to know that that is not the only uh, conversation. From 4 to 5 today, we will be talking to Alderman Roderick Sawyer, who is, of course, one of the nine candidates that will be um, on the ballot for the mayor of the city of Chicago. Let's go back to the phone lines. Jim is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Jim. Hi, Joan. How are you? If this isn't a crystal ball mayor race, there isn't one. This is the crystal ball race of the history of Chicago, I think, in the last 80 years. I mean, uh, Daly Sr. was, to, you know, a guarantee. His son was practically a guarantee. I sat him a little bit toward the end. But uh, I have no idea either. I went to Eric on this one. When I go in to vote, I, I, it's going to be as I walk into the place. Anyway, so I have to say thank you, John. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that, Jim. Uh, let's go out to Jerry from Richmond Park. Hello, Jerry. Thanks for calling in today. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? Good. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, very, very concerned about who the mayor, uh, next mayor in Chicago would be. Now, uh, the last election, I, I uh, supported Tony Threadwinkle. But uh, Lori Lightfoot came in and did a pretty admirable job as mayor. And she did as good or better than her predecessor. Now, the people that you got running right now, Paul Valens would be the last person I would vote for because he's taken too much of the Republican money. He says he's a, 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 a conservative Democrat. He's not. He is a Republican. They're buying China by this election for him. So, no, I would not go with him. Either one or the other. I like Johnson a lot. I like the mayor that you have now. And I like Garcia. But, you know, I would not uh, support that because Paul Valdez do not identify with people in Chicago. How so do you mean he doesn't identify with the people of Chicago? No, he does not. Paul Ballard has been bouncing around ever since he was over to the uh, Chicago Public School. 
I didn't like it when he was there. The way he took it upon himself to do things, he has that, that attitude about him like, uh, no, I couldn't. I couldn't support a person like that. Now, you give me somebody that's concerned about the uh, the city itself. Uh, have, has uh, Lori put her foot in her mouth a couple of times? Yes, she has. But I look at what work she's done. I'm not worried about the style of the person and all that. What did they do for the city? And, and I'm, I'm not... You know, I'm not getting that from Paul. Okay, well, you know, actually, Jerry, that's interesting because I'm going to kind of start out with that with the mayor. Um, I want to talk to her about a program or a policy that she's implemented that she's really proud of and plans to continue or expand when she's reelected. So uh, thanks for for that. I I will uh, I was planning to kind of begin my interview with her. Um, with that kind of a question. Uh, Jerry, we've got to get a quick break in and we've got a couple more calls to get to. Let's do that right now. Take Joan Esposito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentrath, Saturdays at 1 p.m. The accomplishments of President Biden and the last Congress are making our lives better. More jobs created than at any time in history. Wages are up. Inflation down. Manufacturing resurgent. Infrastructure under construction everywhere. (laughs) No wonder they're going crazy over a balloon. The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentrath, Saturdays at 1 p.m. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. As I said, from 2.30 to 3 today, we are going to be talking with Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Uh, we are not going to take calls, but I will try to keep an eye on your texts. I've gotten a lot of good suggestions for questions uh, from the text line. Let's take a couple of more calls, though, before we get to 2.30. Uh, Steve is calling from the Gold Coast. Steve, uh, Lady B tells me you have a question you want me to ask the mayor. What would that be? Yes. Well, well first off, um, with all due respect to the previous caller, I mean, when you look at the polls of the last couple of months, the, the one person that's consistently in that top two or three is Paul Ballas. So apparently there are a lot of people who support him. And I said this a year ago before anybody had announced. I said, look to New York City and uh, look to what dynamics are taking place there. And sure enough, uh, you found somebody who was get tough on crime, pro-law enforcement, who ended up being their mayor. And that's exactly who's in the lead here in Chicago. And if there's a cross-section of people who are progressives and Democrats who, who uh, were not a monolith, who believe that crime is the single most important issue. And quite frankly, if, if Paul is the, one of the two candidates that ends up in the runoff, and I think he will be, there are a lot of other people who, whose platforms are much the same thing. Willie Wilson's people, if they believe that crime is the important issue, as he's been advocating, will naturally migrate to, to Paul Vallis and a lot of other people who've made this uh, uh, their top issue. So uh, my question to Lori is this. Given that the polls show that if she runs against Paul Vallis, she is extremely unlikely to win. Isn't it then in the interest of people who are progressives and are anti-Paul Vallis to vote for somebody else? Because it's quite evident from the polls that she's not the person who's going to win in, in a one-to-one runoff with Paul Vallis. Well, I can certainly ask her, and I'm, I'm going to ask her a form of that question. But you know, Steve, 
I've been in this business long enough. I can tell you they're going to tell you uh, they're going to say, you know, if polls don't mean anything, polls are wrong all the time. And I'm, you know, based now I'm going to I know that I'm got supporters. I know my personal polling shows me really far ahead with great support. I've I've, I've asked the question a million times and I get the same answer every time. You beat me to it, Joan. You're absolutely right, because there's no way that they're going to be honest. The polls are never any good unless they put you out in, the, in front. And there you go. If they don't, then it's my internal polls, because our polls are somewhat better than everybody else's. So, you know, no, no, I don't believe that. Or there's going to be some miraculous sweep of undecided voters that are going to bring me back into office. But, yeah, I'd like for you to ask her. We already know what the answer is going to be, but, hey, let's take a shot. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Roosevelt is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Roosevelt, what do you want me to ask Mayor Lori Lightfoot? Joe, thank you for taking my call. Actually, I called about Paul Vallis. Oh, okay. Go for it. I want to talk about Paul Vallis, you and me. Do you remember a conversation we had, all three of us, when COVID was, COVID was in its peak? And he, he gave us a bunch of numbers, and you and I, if I remember correctly, my memory serves me, he was against our mayor. Of, he kept on giving us numbers on how harmful the masks were. So nobody's asked him that question. In case of a pandemic, I'm talking about Paul Dallas. You can say anything you want about Lori Lightfoot, but I think she did the right thing. And I distinctly remember you agreeing with me. Yeah. And I don't think it was so much it was it wasn't so much uh, the mask thing as he felt that uh, he felt that schools shouldn't have closed. And, you know, he looked at the you know, obviously, as we know from the statistics, a lot of the carjackings that have gone through the roof are younger kids who uh, teenagers who otherwise would have been in school. But the last time I spoke to him, when I had him on last week, last Friday, I said to him, because he repeated that again. That, you know, kids are so far behind and look at all this crime. And I said, but yeah, but you know what, Paul, at least until there was a vaccine, making sure that schools were in attendance, you and I right right now would be talking about the numbers of teachers and students who died from covid. So, you know, yes, it put a lot of students behind the eight ball. And yes, a lot of students who should be home studying weren't and were out uh, getting in trouble. That's that's unequivocal. That's what we've seen. But I think had it gone a different way, had the schools stayed open, and I'm talking about until there was a vaccine, after there was a vaccine, the vaccine should have, you know, brought about a little bit more normalcy sooner than it did. But before there was a vaccine, you know darn well, Roosevelt, we would be talking about um, the kids who died and the teachers who died. And maybe the numbers wouldn't be huge, but, I mean, do you want to talk about even five dead kids? I sure don't. Yeah, and that's my point. You, That's exactly what you said. And then you repeated yourself, and I agree with you. And as a matter of fact, I said, who are you, Paul Bellis? <laughs> the guy from Wisconsin. Remember me saying that? So, you know, if it would have been up to him, he would have opened it up. I, I'm getting, you know, that's the impression I got. He would have opened everything up and no masks and everything. And where would we have been, we have been, have been if he was the mayor at the time? That's what scared me about his. So, Roosevelt, who are you going to vote for? Who do you think um, is the strongest candidate to go up against Paul Vallis, assuming, as we all are, that he will be in the runoff? 
I have two answers. Since you asked me who would be the strongest, I also agree with the gentleman, you, you, you know, when the, everything you read as far as Garcia. So the, the strongest is Garcia, but I'm not voting for Garcia. But like you said, you know, to uh, Steve from the Gold Coast, you know, even Paul Vallis is ahead. I'm voting for Brandon Johnson because he's yeah. the only candidate. He's the only candidate that has a proposal as far as there's a lot of people on the streets. Also, you mentioned about kids being in the street. There's a lot of people that are mentally ill in the streets of Chicago. And he's the only one that raised it at, at the function you guys had, WCPT, where I attended. Quick question, Roosevelt. The one, um, the one thing that people say they don't like about Brandon Johnson is his close ties to the teachers union. And does that mean really that the teachers union would be running the city of Chicago? That doesn't bother you then? No, it doesn't bother me because he addressed that and he would reform the police department. You don't get that from Paul Bellis. You and that's another thing. The Fraternal Order of Police support, supports Paul Bellis. I don't agree with that. He's too chummy with these guys. And he, he was forced to, when uh, DeSantis was here this past Monday, he was forced to say something. But, one, if he's in there, he's going to be chummy with the police department. And he scares me a lot. Paul Bellis tells me as, as our mayor. Because he will not reform the police department. And every police department and every urban city has to be reformed. Otherwise, we're going to see our fellow African-American citizens getting shot in the streets, you know, like we've seen time and time again. And Paul Ballas has rarely raised that issue. That's all I got to say. Well, thank you for that. Um, I appreciate all the calls. Uh, I am still getting texts. I am going to try to um, monitor them. I will make some more notes as we as we go to a break here. By the way, we are going to... Uh, talk to the mayor straight through. We are not going to take a 245 break. I don't want to interrupt the stream of our conversation uh, for a commercial break. So um, let's get some commercials in right now so we can have that conversation with Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot when we come right back after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This coming Tuesday, February 28th, is the last day to vote in the Chicago mayor's race. Hopefully you got out and voted early. But February 28th is the last day. And within 24 hours, we will know who the two candidates are who will be facing each other in a runoff this April. We are pleased to talk to all the candidates, especially pleased today to be joined by the mayor of Chicago, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Madam Mayor, thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, John. You know, uh, we did this last time, you and me, when you were running for mayor. And a lot of people discounted your candidacy back then, and you won. Now you also seem to be in a bit of an underdog position, but I suspect that's a position you like being in. Am I wrong? Well, no, I, I, I've been the underdog my whole life, and I love proving people wrong. 
So we're working hard. We take nothing for granted. Uh, we're all over the city. Uh, we are door knocking, um, going down commercial strips, and really making the case uh, to voters, uh, both about what's at stake in this election, uh, but why uh, they should uh, give me the opportunity for four more years. Well, let's talk about that. What program or policy that you have instituted are you really proud of and plan to either continue or expand in your second term? What what would you look at as one of your shining accomplishments? Well, look, I would I would step back and say, what did the voters say four years ago? The voters, I think, issued a very clear mandate that they were sick and tired of the old Chicago way that benefited a clouded few, but left everybody else on the outside looking in. That way meant that most people in the city didn't get the benefit of city services unless they had a guy kiss the ring or kiss some other uh, body parts. That way meant that you could only um, uh, get resources in your neighborhood uh, if you made the right political donation um, or um, made sure that your alderman took care of you. Voters unequivocally said four years ago, we're done with that. We want somebody different. We want somebody who doesn't come up uh, through the machine. And they gave me the honor of a lifetime and selecting me as the mayor of the city. And so what I've done every single day is I got sworn in in May of 2019 is work hard to live up to the mandate that the voters gave me. That meant um, on my first day, ending all the manic prerogatives. That meant passing historic ethics reform. That meant bringing economic development and resources to parts of our city that have been starved for far too long. That meant making sure that we are supporting our police department but holding them accountable and making sure that we, we live up to our obligation around police reform. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that. You know, since I was there in the auditorium when you gave your uh, initial inaugural speech and from the podium at that time, you took the city council to task a lot of the people, some of whom were your staunch supporters. um, Tom Tunney said, Lousy Garza have said that you have. Too, you're too abrasive. You've brought too abrasive a style to politics. Tom Tunney said, you know, to get things done in politics, the rule of thumb is you praise in public and you criticize in private. Now, we've had tough talking mayors before. Nobody is going to look at Rahm Emanuel and think that, you know, he was mismanners by any stretch of the imagination. But a lot of his criticisms were made behind closed doors. A lot of the the, one of the big criticisms of you is that you've alienated too many people who were or could have been your supporters. What do you say about that? Well, you know, that is a narrative out there, Joan. And, and you know, as a woman uh, in a leadership position, um, we're always going to face uh, that criticism. They are always going to be viewed uh, by with a different lens. But here's what I would say. If that narrative was true, then we would be in paralysis. We couldn't get anything done. Yeah, I'm tough. I think that's what the voters uh, wanted. But I'm also um, somebody who has delivered over and over again. Think about my first year. We faced a historic large um, budget deficit of $838 million. And guess what? We got a majority of the city council 
to work with us and pass a budget that closed that deficit that didn't um, result in any layoffs and didn't result in any loss of city services. The next year, we faced an even more daunting challenge because of COVID when our revenues were drying up, a $1.2 billion uh, deficit. And there, uh, we, again, were able to work together with members of the city council, with organized labor, to close that budget uh, deficit. Um, and again, without layoffs and without any loss of services. I'll take the casino, uh, which, which, which Con Tunney was a part of. 30 years of futility from mayor after mayor. Couldn't get it done. We got it done. And I um, made calls and built relationships with people in Springfield to make sure that we delivered. So the list is long. Judge me not by my delivery, but judge me by the things that I have delivered for the city. Historic investment in our neighborhoods, the largest investment in um, the environment in the city's history, largest investment in affordable housing, $1 billion. The list is long of what we've been able to do against the toughest headwinds that any mayor has faced uh, since the Great Fire. Well, let's talk about those those things, because there was a lot of um, controversy that, you know, there weren't enough public hearings. There wasn't enough public input that the Bali's deal didn't really even have that much aldermanic input. I mean, the same the same arguments that are being raised about the deal with NASCAR, that nobody was consulted. And, you know, it wasn't the pros and cons weren't evaluated and they were just sort of presented with a done deal. Well, absolutely not so. We put the um, RFP out uh, for uh, the public to see uh, right away. We, when we um, got the uh, proposals in, we put those proposals out for the public to see right away. We made every one of those applicants come in a public forum at UIC uh, to make their case to the public. And I will tell you, only two members of city council came to that public forum. Long day. We made everyone out there. People were able to evaluate and ask questions. When we narrowed uh, the five proposals to three, once again, we had public hearings all across the city, and each of the three had to present another time uh, to the public and answer questions from the public. So this notion that somehow um, six months plus a public hearing and transparency wasn't enough. I frankly, I don't even understand that because the truth is, the truth is that the members of the city council, as well as the members of the public, had the opportunity multiple times to see the proposals, to hear from the applicants, and importantly, to ask questions and weigh in. And that's precisely what happened. People can make the criticism, but they're not entitled to their own set of facts. We've been looking at all the different polls, and yeah, I know, I take polls with a grain of salt. But one thing, whether it's a partisan poll or an independent poll, one thing that has struck me is the large number of undecided voters. I mean, literally, if the undecided block goes to any candidate, that candidate is a lock to at least make it to the runoff, if not make it to the uh, mayor's office. Are you surprised by that? And what can you do in these last few days to get those undecided voters in your column? Well, there's, there's always a portion of undecided 
uh, because people are, and, and I, I think this is a good thing for our democracy. People are taking their time. They're evaluating and, and making decisions based upon the information that they're receiving. So what we're doing is making sure that we are identifying um, our voters and getting them to the polls, but we're consistently um, showing the contrast between me and the other candidates so that people who are undecided or maybe people who are leaning one way or another have adequate information uh, to make a decision on. Because this is, in my view, one of the most consequential municipal elections that we've had in a very long time. This is well, going to determine whether we can keep moving forward on a path that brings everybody uh, together, that uh, makes sure that resources are going to all parts of our city and not just some, or whether we're going to turn back the clock. Because that's really what's at stake. If you want to make sure that we continue on a pragmatic, progressive um, agenda, making sure that we stitch back together the social safety net that was frayed before COVID, but really uh, became um, tenuous um, during COVID. The work that we've done uh, to get mental health resources into all of our 77 neighborhoods, the work that we've done to make sure that people have access to affordable health care, the work that we've done to make sure that we invest um, in our families and our young people, um, historic levels of investment. And I mentioned before, I'm very proud of the investments that we've made in our environment and bringing city government uh, by 2030 to rely on only renewable sources of energy. These are big, important steps for our present and our future. And all of that is on the ballot. So we're you know, um, as part of the answer you just gave me, you used the P word progressive, which, of course, is uh, real big around here at WCPT. I can't remember when you ran for mayor whether you labeled yourself progressive then or not. But right now, a lot of the people that I'm in touch with, a lot of the newsletters I read, they don't consider you a progressive candidate in this current race. Do you care that you don't seem to have that label anymore? Well, what I care about is what I do, what values I have, and how I've delivered. And if you look at our record of accomplishments, particularly for working families and individuals, the protections that we put in place, raising the $15 minimum wage, um, cutting the deficit in affordability, bringing online um, equity and inclusion, and making them real, if that's not progressive, I don't know what is. I can't speak for how other people label me, but there's no question whatsoever that this pragmatic, progressive mayor has delivered over and over again for residents of the city to make their lives better and to make sure that the policies and practices of City Hall really reflect the lived experience of the hardworking men and women in this city. Well, you know, in my very unscientific, completely and utterly unscientific poll, it seems that a lot of the people, and again, we are a progressive station, so uh, a lot of the people, the listeners I interact with, come with a certain mindset. But it seems like a great number of people are deciding who they are going to vote for on who they think has the best chance of defeating Paul Vallis. You know, he's doing very well. Uh, by all accounts, he's expected to get in the runoff. And person after person, I say, well, who do you like? Well, you know, I want to pick the person who I think can really defeat Paul Vallis. Is that person you? And if so, why? The, the, the answer is clear. It's absolutely me. 
And there's no question whatsoever. I will beat Paul Vallis and send him into permanent retirement. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You look at the the ones that are um, in striking range. So um, Chewy Garcia. Chewy Garcia, unfortunately, is a great disappointment. He clearly decided after he lost in 2015, if you can't beat the machine, join the machine. He made a series of unsavory bathroom deals with now disgraced, indicted former speaker Mike Madigan and defended him at a time when everybody knew that he was under federal indictment. Chiri Garcia would be the Trojan horse that brings cronyism and corruption to City Hall. He's knocking on the door. Don't answer. Let's look at Brandon Johnson. Lots of people and probably some of your listeners like Brandon Johnson. But he's got I got to say, after just real quick, as an aside, after we did our mayoral forum, I kept surveying the listeners and I, I personally like Brandon Johnson, but I was surprised at a how many of our listeners were unfamiliar with him and b after the forum, how many of them had great positive things to say about him. He seems, you know, again, unscientific. His candidacy seems to be surging now. So do talk about the differences between you and Brandon Johnson. Well, I got 800 million reasons why Brandon Johnson should not get to a runoff or ever be mayor. Number one is $8 million is the amount of taxes that he wants to impose on top of hardworking men and women in the city. He wants to tax what he calls the rich, but his taxes would impact anybody making over $100,000 or more. And to put it into context, that's 34% of the teachers at CPS. That's untold numbers of police and fire and other city workers before we even get to the private sector. Uh, Brandon Johnson isn't better for Chicago. Brandon Johnson is bad for Chicago because he will drive businesses out of the city. And with them, they'll take those jobs. They'll drive people to the unemployment line. And I fear for uh, Brandon Johnson, if he's able to impose the level of taxes that he wants, he's going to drive the city into recession. And yet, one of the ta- one of the taxes he wants to bring about is he wants to bring back the head tax. And I had a long conversation on the air with Greg Hines and Greg was like, it was a bad idea when it first came up. You know, it got it got killed. Now he wants to resurrect it. And I asked him about it and I wondered if he would back off because it isn't certainly something that's welcomed by the business community. But he kind of doubled down. He believes that a head tax, if you're a business in the city of Chicago and you hire um, X number of people over a level, then you pay a certain literally head tax for each of those people. Um, What do you think of the idea of a head tax? I think it's a terrible idea because businesses will move out of the city. The ones that are able to are going to move right away and they're going to take those jobs with us. The ones that can't move, it's going to crush their ability to recover. We're just coming out of an economic recession occasioned by uh, COVID shutdowns. Really, this is the time that we want to impose that kind of attack on small businesses, medium-sized businesses, it's absolutely not. It's a terrible idea. Also, while he won't say it publicly, the people who are funding and supporting him also support a city income tax. Nobody thinks that that's a good idea, except for some radical folks who, frankly, um, don't have the best interest of our city and in mind. You can't be someone who says, I'm a champion 
for the working men and women of the city and think that it's a good idea to impose another onerous tax on their back when they can barely, uh, they're barely recovering from COVID-19. If you really want to help working men and women in the city, do what we've done. Raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. We were the first municipality in the, city, in the state to do that. Now it's over $15 an hour. If you really want to help working men and women, make sure that they have anti-retaliation uh, protection. Uh, enhance the wage theft laws, as we have done. There's a number of things that we can do to lift up the fortune of working men and women of the city, but imposing onerous taxes on their employers, which is going to lead to unemployment. That is the wrong, wrong direction. Madam Mayor, um, what will you change or do differently in a second term? Well, look, there's a number of things. I hope if I'm blessed with the second term, we're not going to be fighting through a global pandemic. That that is um, that has really uh, occupied a significant amount of my time. But we've built deep partnerships and relationships with social services groups, with a faith community uh, that we're going to lean into to continue to do the work of making sure that our most vulnerable residents have the resources and support that they need to be able to thrive. Our seniors, our people with underlying conditions, we've got to get them the health care that they need that's affordable and culturally competent. That's a critical factor. We've got to keep reaching out to our young people and making sure that they and their families have the support that they need so that our young people are able to dream big dreams and thrive in a city that has so much wealth. We've got to make sure that we continue to do the work of protecting our environment. We've made great strides in four years' time, but there's much more that we can do. And, of course, we've got to continue to make strides on public safety, to bend the curve, um, but also make sure that we're supporting alternative forms of safety, like investments in street outreach, like making sure uh, that we're taking care of the people who are suffering from addiction, um, who are suffering from mental health uh, challenges, making sure that we have alternate forms of response like we've started uh, to do uh, that don't involve the police. All of those things are important for us to continue the progress that we made and continue to be a thriving economy um, where everyone, no matter your circumstances, has a shot at success in the city of Chicago. One other thing that I also want to uplift, we've taken some big strides to make sure that we see and support our returning residents. Just last week, um, we um, introduced new changes to the city's hiring uh, practices so that we're creating even more job opportunities for people that have paid their dues, done their time. We've got to eliminate the permanent punishment that exists because we, for too long, people who returned from uh, the IDOC and Cook County Jail they weren't welcomed back into their own community. They had no way to participate in a legitimate economy. We've got to make sure that we continue to break down those walls. You can't talk about public safety if you're not also making a pathway for returning residents. And I'm proud of the work that we've done. I'm proud of um, our director of reentry, uh, Willette Benford, who is herself a returning resident after having spent 20 years behind bars. She obviously 
understands the lived experience of the thousands and thousands of returning residents in our city. I think that is a, a great idea and something more cities should adopt. In the answer you just gave, you used the other P word, which was police. Virtually every one of your opponents wants to see Superintendent Brown leave the Chicago Police Department. And a majority of them, <clears throat> excuse me, believe that it's the next superintendent should be promoted from within the ranks. Any any word on you? Are you going to stick with David Brown? Are you thinking about making a change? Is it at least on the table? Well, listen, there will be a change. David Brown turned 63 in October and under state law. You can no longer be a sworn officer at 63. But really, it's, it's, it's a simplistic um, answer. It's always easy to say off with the head of the person. But really, I think the question that's most important is what are our brave men and women in the police department doing every single day? We made progress in 2020 on homicides, on shootings, on carjacking, all the key metrics that we measure because our men and women are out there doing heroic work every single day. We're continuing that progress in 2020. So the answer to the question is, not what's up with David Brown. It's what's going on with our police department. We have made a huge stride in compliance under the consent decree. That's critically important. But uh, you're yeah. getting criticized because some people are saying it, it's been too slow in being implemented, that it should more should have been done, more should have been, been accomplished by now. If, if you look at where we are roughly three, four years into a consent decree, we are further ahead than any other city at the same time period. Every city that's been in a consent decree has been in for 10 to 12 years, whether it's L.A., whether it's New Orleans twice, whether it's Cleveland twice. If you look at other cities and comparable time periods, we're exceeding what those cities actually accomplish. Now, again, it's easy to say, oh, it's not enough, but you've got to look at the facts and you've got to look at the progress. We are now a city where 40 hours mandatory training is the rule of the day, where five years ago, before I became mayor, it was zero hours. So I understand it's a silly season. People like to take shots at the current administration. But as I said before, people are not entitled to their own staff. And the fact of the matter is we are making enormous progress as verified by the independent monitor and as verified by the federal judge that monitors it every day. If we weren't, you would know it because we would be held in contempt by the court. That's not happened. It's never happening under my watch. And we're going to continue to forge ahead and do the things that are necessary, not the bottom, the bare minimum. But we're going to the consent decree, in my view, is the floor, not the ceiling. And we're going to continue to make progress because as we make progress, we make a safer city. We make a more accountable uh, police department. And keep in mind, I led the Police Accountability Task Force when we issued a very um, candid and scathing report. And many of the recommendations of that um, task force we are implementing now, whether independently or through the consent decree. So I'm proud of the progress that we've made. I've devoted a significant amount of my adult life to police reform and accountability. And now in the mayor's um, seat, 
I get to make sure that those reforms are real and lasting, and that's exactly what we're doing. One one uh, last question uh, as we wrap up. I personally uh, don't care whether the Bears stay in Chicago or move to Arlington Heights. I got I got no dog in this hunt, but apparently I'm in the minority, and a lot of people have really strong feelings about this. What do you think about this? Is it important to keep the Bears, or uh, do we uh, do we tell them go with God to Arlington Heights? Well, listen, it's important that we keep the Bears, the Chicago Bears, in Chicago. And now that they're closed in the property, the legal restraints from us being able to um, associate and present directly, we've been having conversations. But now we have the opportunity, and we're going to take full advantage of it, to make the business case as to why a reimagined soldier field is the best option uh, for the Bears. So I'm going to fight like crazy um, to make sure that they stay uh, in Chicago. Um, Soldier Field is a very sought-after venue, but it should be and remain the home of the Chicago Bears. And we want to make sure that our team is good and strong and get back to a Super Bowl. Okay, well, I don't understand why people are so passionate about it, but I think that they will be glad to hear that you are compassionate, uh, passionate about this issue as well. In the, in the final minute or so that we have left, what's one message you want our listeners to take away from this interview? Well, first and foremost, I, I want to say this. Everybody running for mayor loves their city. Everybody running for mayor um, believes that they've got the right ideas to keep our city moving forward. But the thing that separates me from everyone else is I have actually delivered over and over again on progressive, pragmatic policies that have uplifted the quality of life for hardworking men and women across the city, uh, bending the curb on violence, not temporarily, but bringing lasting peace for neighborhoods that have been plagued for far too long, stitching back together the social safety net, whether it's in uh, accessibility to health care, accessibility in all of our 77 neighborhoods to free mental health services. We are on the move. Our economy is strong. Our economy is vibrant. We need to finish the work that we started. And I ask for your vote for four more years. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Thank you for making time. I know that this is crunch time and every second of your day is booked. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and my audience. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joan. God bless and go Bears. <laughs> okay, if you insist. <laughs> we are going to take a break for news. We'll be back with more politics right after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. Remember when you get to work to hop over to WCPT820.com or the TuneIn Radio app and stream The Stephanie Miller Show weekdays 8 to 11 a.m. on Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2, right here on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. 
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. Well, we have been talking politics for weeks now, and I thought it uh, might be informative and interesting to find out what kinds of rules campaigns have to follow you may or may not have caught this news report recently um you know there's a rule in the city of chicago that if you do business with the city of chicago the amount of money that you can donate uh to elected officials is limited but there have been some rumblings that um people who do business with the city are getting around that rule by creating these packs and donating to the PACs, and then the PACs donate to the candidates. Uh, as I was reading that story, it made me realize that there's a lot about campaign, campaign financial rules that I don't know and don't understand. So I asked Matt Dietrich to join us. He's the public information officer at the Illinois State Board of Elections, and he is here to answer all of my very basic questions. Matt, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Joan. Okay, let's jump right in. What is a PAC? A PAC is a political action committee. And there are several different kinds of political action committees that you can form in the state of Illinois. The main one that we hear the most about is the candidate political committee. That's a fundraising committee that a candidate for office forms uh, and is required to form if that candidate has raised or spent more than $5,000 in a 12-month period. So, so Illinois, if somebody is going to be getting big money donations, you want to make sure those don't just go into the candidate's checkbook. Right. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And it's the same thing for if you are going to raise or spend money uh, on in order to, let's say, promote some referendum issue that's on your local ballot. Uh, you can form a committee for that. And you have to. If you're going to raise or or if you've raised or spent more than five thousand dollars, there's also a political party committee. That's the committees that are founded by the political parties, and they exist mainly to help fund their members uh, uh, campaign funds. So uh, I mentioned the uh, ballot initiative committee. That's that's where. for example, the um, oh, when we had the progressive income tax, mm-hmm. I was just going to uh, mention that as an example. Uh, yeah, there was a ballot initiative committee supporting it. There were uh, there was at least one that was opposing it, um, but they raised quite a bit of money. And then there is Lady B. I don't hear Matt. Um, Matt, I don't know if you can hear me, but your audio just uh, dropped out of, uh, I assume that you're not going out over the radio because I can't hear you. 
Okay. Uh, Lady B is establishing a new line to Matt Dietrich. He is the public information officer at the Illinois State Board of Elections. And um, I asked him what a PAC is. It's a political action committee, and there are different kinds. If you're running for office, uh, you have to create one of these things. Basically, it's a way to keep you honest, you know, that the money doesn't just end up in your checking account and you don't use it uh, to, you know, I don't know, take your spouse out to dinner or something that uh, the money can't be used for legally. Um, there's also these kinds of committees formed to support or oppose a ballot measure and uh, there are general PACs that raise money for groups of candidates. Matt, there was a lot of talk that um, he's back now. Hello, Matt, um, that uh, Donald Trump, after he got out of office, he created one of these political political action committees. But apparently the way it was set up and in the fine print, it said, by the way, uh, this money that you're donating, Mr. Trump can spend it any way he wants to whether he was spending it on buying a new pair of shoes or paying off the millions that he owed to his lawyers. It was kind of a freewheeling kind of a thing. Do different kinds of PACs operate under different rules? Yes. Yes, they do. Now, what you were talking about there, that is a federal committee. So that's a whole different set of rules than what we deal with. Okay, now let's come back to the state of Illinois. The heck with that right now. Well, with the state of Illinois, the, the, the difference, a, a lot of the difference comes down to how much money each one is allowed to accept. Um, and, and in uh, 2011, the first ever campaign contribution limit law in Illinois went into effect. And currently, a, a political candidate can receive $6,900 from an individual, 13700 from a corporation or a union, and 68500 from another candidate political committee or another political action committee. And then they can also receive higher amounts from a political party committee. So those are the limits that are in place on candidates. However, uh, there are also our provisions where those limits are lifted. And if we're talking about the Chicago city elections, uh, we should point out that the limits for campaign contributions to candidates for mayor were lifted in April of 2022 because Willie Wilson gave a $5 million contribution to his own campaign. Uh, So that made him a self-funding candidate. And what that means is that the limits are lifted for all other candidates in that race. That's why all the candidates for mayor in Chicago are not under any limits. I see. And it's a way of leveling the playing field, right? It is. That that's and that's exactly the reason you want the the others now can compete with his self-funding by soliciting larger contributions. And actually, it only would have taken $100,000 to get those contribution limits lifted because in Illinois, in a in any office that is not a statewide office, if a candidate puts $100,000 into his or her own campaign fund, they're considered, and they file a notice of self-funding with us, they're considered to be a self-funding candidate, and the limits come off. So for the mayoral candidates, there are no contribution limits. And also in the, 20, uh, the 43rd aldermanic race, there are no contribution limits in effect. And that's because in September, uh, candidate Rebecca Janowitz 
gave three separate $250,000 contributions to her own campaign fund. So that lifted the limits for the other, uh, the other candidates in the 43rd. Um, in, the, in the 25th Aldermanic District, there are no contribution limits. And that's because you have, that's not because the candidates have put their own money into their own races. It's because you have a couple of independent expenditure committees making expenditures on behalf of and in opposition to the two candidates in that race. Okay, you're going to have to back up and define your terms because I got a little lost with that last sentence. Okay. It's an independent expenditure committee is a committee that exists to make independent expenditures. They can It's not a pack. They want to. It is a pack. Okay. That's called it's an independent expenditure committee. That's a form of political action committee that can accept contributions of any size from any source and they can spend any amount they want to support or oppose a candidate that they support or oppose. The only thing they cannot do is they cannot coordinate with any candidate or any other committee. Their spending has to be independent. So in this case, uh, they came into the, the 25th Ward race. There are two PACs. One's called the Get Stuff Done Pack. The other one is called the Working Families for Chicago Pack. They're both independent. They're spending either to oppose or support Aida Flores and Byron Sichko Lopez in the 25th Ward race. And the uh, Get Stuff Done Pack has spent over $100,000 as of February 17th. We declared that there are no, no longer limits there. And as you said earlier, that is a means of leveling the playing field as well. Because if you're running for office, no matter what office it is, you could have this outside group that comes in and starts spending thousands and thousands of dollars to put up signs for your opponent and buy TV time. And if, and if they spend a hundred thousand dollars, then the limits come off for you as well so that you can then raise to counter that, that advertising, or if, uh, you know, it could work the same way for your opponent. So that's the, that, that, and that's what's happened in the 25th ward. Okay. Those are the only um, two wards where they're not subject to those limits that I mentioned earlier, the 6,900 from individuals, 13,700 from uh, corporations, and 68,500 from other political committees. This is kind of a, a, a tangent, but I was reading about, I can't remember if it was an aldermanic race or what, but not only had the person running donated to their campaign, but they, there was a separate donation from their spouse. Like, you know, I'm giving $50,000 to my campaign. My spouse is donating $100,000. Would that be considered, for the purposes of the way the financing is set up, would that be considered still uh, self-financing, or is a spouse considered an outside person? No, immediate family would be considered as self-funding in that case. Okay. Uh, um, Matt, we need to take a break. Um um, I'm talking to Matt Dietrich, who's the public information officer at the Illinois State Board of Elections. When we come back, Matt, I've been, again, my understanding of all this stuff, as you can obviously tell, is um, pretty surface. But I've been reading about some PACs 
where you know exactly who's donating to them, and some PACs that donate to candidates seemingly as a way of hiding where the money's coming from. I want to talk to you about that, um, how that works and what the legal maneuvering there is when we come right back after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa, you feel that right away. Oh. It's just refreshing. The family meeting. There's a practical use to social media. And I know it's it's hard to watch some of the garbage that comes across, the, the silly videos, and you, you don't want everybody to tell you every little thing they're doing. And I don't care about your little you eating pizza. I don't I care about that. It's still, But it's still different than opening up a newspaper or a magazine and going, well, that article I'm not interested in. That article right. I'm not interested in. I'm, gonna, I'm interested in the one. Or, or, or oh. thumbs down or whatever you do to it so it doesn't show up it's anymore. It's the same thing. But it's also an opportunity for you to spread the word, right? Tune into the family meeting Sundays at four. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Joining me is Matt Dietrich, who's the public information officer at the Illinois State Board of Elections. He is uh, trying to give me a primer (laughs) on uh, campaign donations, campaign finance, particularly as it applies to the races that are going to be on the ballot in the very near future. I was reading, uh, I think this was about having to do with candidates in Wisconsin, that there was a pack that was donating to one of the conservative candidates and nobody knew where the money was coming from. There were vague beliefs that it had some ties to the Koch Family Foundation, but it was the money donated was opaque. How can that be? I mean, there are packs where you don't have to, you know, say, well, you know, Matt, I'm going to give you a hundred thousand dollars because I want you to uh, run in the next election against, I don't know, Tom Tunney, but I don't want anybody to know that I'm financing you. So let's set up this opaque pack. Uh, how can that be, Matt? Well, it wouldn't be a matter of setting up an opaque pack. Um, what you're talking about are so-called dark money groups. Yes. Those are, yeah, those are politically active nonprofits. So those are it's 501c4 organizations. They're not required to disclose where their funding comes from. So they can collect that money, and then they, they can contribute to another, to a political action committee, um, as, you know, whatever the XXX Foundation. Um, so you'll see the amount of the contribution that comes from the nonprofit because they'll have to report that. The candidate would have to report that or the political party committee or a, another type of political action committee. And I'm talking about in the state of Illinois under our state rules. They'd have to report receiving it. The problem is that you do not know where the nonprofit initially gathered all of those, you know, where did its money come from? Um, And that is based on federal law that says they're not required to disclose who their funders are. Let me uh, give you an example, and you tell me if I'm understanding this. I've spoken with a lot of people from Planned Parenthood, and Planned Parenthood, of course, is a nonprofit, delivers health care services, 
Um, but they, because they are a nonprofit, they can't like go to Springfield and lobby for new laws. So there is a second, it's got a, it's got a different name. There's a second Planned Parenthood creation, a second organization that is political. It is designed to accept donations. It is designed to lobby and to try to uh, change lawmakers' minds. It is decide, it's there to fight for certain laws. It is the Planned Parenthood, perhaps, mission, cause, beliefs, but it is a separate organization and it is purely political in nature. Is that what we're talking about here? More or less. Uh, that's not what you're talking about, though, when we're talking about um, dark money, so-called dark money. Okay, so just because you have a political like, arm, a political creation um, that's associated with a nonprofit, it doesn't mean that the money is invisible. Not in the case of an organization like Planned Parenthood, uh, a lot, for example, unions typically will have a political arm um, that is a separate political action committee entity associated with them. When you're talking about a dark money group, you're talking about a nonprofit that exists only to be politically active. So it, it is it is somewhat different. Okay. But it is, we're talking something that is legal. Uh, we create one of these organizations, um, and because, you know, the argument is nobody really knows the reach of the Koch family. They have billions and billions of dollars. They, like the Uline family, like to use their money to create political outcomes, but I mean, I think the book that was written about the Koch family was called Dark Money. Um, you have no way of knowing when one of these organizations supports a candidate um, where the money came from. That doesn't seem right, Matt. That is according to federal law. That's all I can. You know, that's as much. It might not be I, right, I, but it's legal. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, is this? You know, people always talk about the Supreme Court decision that, you know, corporations were people and money is free speech. Correct. Do these uh, dark money groups come out? Did, is that where they get their legal standing from that kind of a decision? That is. And that's also why we have independent expenditure committees in Illinois that do not have any limits on how much they can, uh, how much in, in contributions they can accept and and their spending is unlimited as well. It all comes out of that. Okay, tell me uh, who is financially illiterate and any of my listeners who might join me in that boat, when it comes to an election and when we're looking at campaign finance and donations, what should we be paying attention to? What's important? Well, you should pay attention to who is funding your candidate's uh, or not your candidate, but you should be paying attention to who is funding a candidate's campaign. Um, you can do a candidate disclosure search on our website, which is elections.il.gov. Just go under the campaign disclosure tab. You can do a candidate disclosure search, and you can find out, you know, are individuals primarily funding this person's campaign, or uh, is, 
is this person getting a lot of organized labor support? Is it getting a lot of uh, corporate support? Or are other candidate committees uh, flowing money into, you know, uh, in, into this candidate's um, candidate committee? Those are the kinds of things you should look at. And that's why um, transparency is so important in all of this. And that's why uh, we're right now, obviously, within just days of the, uh, the election in Chicago, any candidate who receives a contribution of $1,000 or more now has to report it immediately within two days uh, because we're within 30 days of an election. Um, and, and for the rest of the, for the, rest of the time, uh, even further away from an election, candidates have to report contributions of more than $1,000 within 30 days of receiving them. So that's, that's really one of the most important things that we do at the State Board of Elections is put this stuff out so that voters can take a look at it and see who is funding the campaigns of their state representative, state senator, governor, alderman, mayor, whatever. Okay. Matt, thank you so much. <laughs> I'm sure I'll have to consult with you in, again in the future because I get confused very easily. But thank you oh, for explaining you all of this so clearly. <laughs> okay, thanks for having me. We are going to take a break. We are going to talk more national politics right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. One of the websites that I consult for an overview of national news is buzzflash.com. It is known as the Aggressive Progressive website. It is founded and edited by Mark Carlin, who joins us now. Mark, how have you been? I've been doing okay. What about you, Joan? Well, you know, we're working our way up to an election, and that always <laughs> takes a toll. Um, speaking of which, I noticed that on the homepage for BuzzFlash.com, you focused on our neighbor to the north, neighbor to the north, and the uh, election that just took place to narrow the field from four to two in the race for the Illinois, or Illinois Wisconsin Supreme Court. Uh, Janet Protasewicz, the Democrat, getting the most votes of all four candidates. Uh, the next vote getter, who she will face April fourth, Daniel Kelly. And uh, there's a really interesting article on the homepage for BuzzFlash.com about this race and how I know, I, Mark, I want to be very positive about this. I want to get my hopes up, but I've I've been I've been hurt before, Mark. Um, but Daniel Kelly, he seems so beatable. You know, he was uh, briefly on the Supreme Court when he was appointed to fill a seat. By Dan Walker, but then when he ran to try to hang on to that seat, he was roundly defeated. 
What do you think of this race for the Supreme Court seat in Wisconsin? Well, I think it's a very important uh, election. It's for the majority being either progressive or reactionary. Uh, Kelly would be a right-wing justice, and uh, the woman who won would be very progressive, uh, pro-abortion, and um I I think it's it's going to be a, a, what they call a bellwether election, maybe uh, giving us some signal of what's going to happen in 2024. Um, so it it it's it's quite an important one to watch. You know this um, election that took place on the 21st, where the four candidates for Wisconsin Supreme Court were limited down to were winnowed down to two. There was a big, big boost in the uh, young people vote. In the midterm elections not all that long ago, there was a big surprising boost in the vote of the younger demographic. When you, you've studied these politics and elections for every bit as long as I have, what do you attribute that to? I think we're going through a generational change in America, and young people tend to be pro-choice. Uh, and um, this this is something where those of us who are over uh, 40, you know, I think are, it's taking a while to realize, I mean, the politics of the future is the politics of uh, the younger generations. And um, I think they're saying, you know, we want we want our government back to our values. I definitely think that there are a lot of issues um, that are being voted on that are important to the younger generation. But but the numbers, I mean, the numbers we've I've always bemoaned the fact that. Younger people just, while they may be involved, they may work for candidates. You know, when I've seen the demographic breakdown of the vote totals after an election, you know, it, the 18 to 24, the 24 to 35 were always the tiniest turnout. And it used to break my heart. I suspect that two things might be at play. And I'd like you to weigh in on this. First of all, the fact that Roe v. Wade went away and now they have fewer rights than they had before, which is new to them in their lifetimes. And also, I suspect that the younger generation has completely given up on my generation as far as being able to stop mass shootings, to be able to take a stand ban assault weapons, whatever it takes, allow gun companies to be sued for for libel. They see, you know, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. I mean, with one of these with the with the mass shooting on the Michigan State campus, there was a girl on campus that day who survived Sandy Hook. I mean, she's now she's not even 30 and she's been a part of two mass shootings I have to believe that they are they've utterly given up on our generation. What do you think, Mark? I think you have a good hypothesis um on the abortion front uh young people are very very uh, pro choice in terms of uh, polling 
And um, I think as we saw in Kansas, just after uh, the ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade, uh, that adopted a constitutional amendment that uh, abortion would be legal in Kansas. I think that was the beginning of a snowball of energy against um, anti-choice candidates um, or candidates who uh, were against abortion. Uh, as far as the guns, yes, I used to be head of the Illinois Council Against Handgun Violence for many years. And it took a long time uh, until, I think, the past few years for guns to become um, really a national issue, lighting the fire under young people and, and many others. Um but I think, unfortunately, the politics of the older generation still haven't changed. And that is something that may be motivating young people because the mass shootings just don't seem to stop. Yeah, definitely. Uh, they don't seem to stop. And we seem powerless to stop them. I mean, it's, you know, we, we used to have an assault weapons ban um the majority of the country seems to support it it always amazes me when i see issues like abortion that the majority of the country has a certain stance and and yet one of our major political parties pretends it isn't so as a matter of fact not only have the republicans not been satisfied with turning the matter over to the states they're now introducing what they want, uh, they want a federal ban on abortion. They want to start re- restricting contraception. Clearly, these are ideas that are out of step with the vast majority of the people in this country. So why on earth, Mark, do they keep pursuing them? I think with Republicans, um, there are certain congressional districts, certain states that these tend to be um, popular positions. But the party as a whole represents the entire nation. And um, I think the Republicans are going to get beat on this. We saw the midterm election. The Republicans really got um, lumped um about being um, anti-abortion. And um, I think, you know, young people, as you pointed out, but but also uh, the majority of Americans who are pro-choice rebel against this. I don't think it's a winning issue overall for the Republicans, as we saw in uh, 2022. I don't think so either. I'm talking with Mark Carlin, the founder and editor of the aggressive progressive website, buzzflash.com. We're going to take a break, but when we come back again on the homepage, there is a story that I haven't been, I haven't had the time to get to that I want to share with you that is on the buzzflash page about Steve Bannon. He's being sued. And we will talk more about that when we come right back after this. 
podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. There is a German word, schadenfreude, when you take pleasure in the misfortune of others. And I frequently experience that when I read that Steve Bannon uh, who is right there up with Bill Barr in my book of just simply reprehensible human beings. Uh, he's in a little bit of trouble. Mark Carlin, would you like to explain it to our audience? Well, basically, he's um, a debtor to lawyers who have represented him on uh, many of these sort of uh, pro-Trump initiatives he made. Um, I don't think this should be surprising that he owes his lawyers that much money because so much of uh, Trump is, is is about the individual not having any responsibility or uh, the individual being able to do whatever he or she wants. And Steve Bannon is um, an excellent example of that, where he basically doesn't give a damn about owing lawyers money or um, uh, taking from funds. If you remember, uh, he was head of this group that tried to build a small section of the wall with Mexico, and it was a total con. Um, Steve Bannon was indicted for taking money, embezzling basically from the fund for personal use. He got a yacht and yada, yada, yada. And he only <laughs> got off because Trump pardoned him. Um, so I, you know, these, these are grifters. I mean, Steve Bannon, for all his bombast is basically just like Trump. He's a grifter. Yeah. And, but, but wait a minute. You know, the thing is, isn't he supposed to be rich? I mean, isn't he supposed to be like some like former, like, I don't know, Goldman Sachs guy who made a kajillion dollars and now just, you know, does this whole, you know, podcast thing that only far right people listen to? Um, not that not that just because you have money means that you definitely spend money, but supposedly the fallout from this lawsuit and frankly, you know, usually if people, especially rich people, don't pay their bills to legal firms, there is a negotiation that takes place. The fact that this law firm has filed suit against him. I mean, they want they want the money he owes. They want to be paid for the time that they're spending working on this case to get the money he owes. And any time that they're in court, they want to be paid for that time, too, because they consider that part part of him not paying his bill. That's a pretty amazing thing. I mean, look at Donald Trump, who is infamous for not paying his lawyers. And yet I can't think off the top of my head, Mark, of an instance where a law firm sued him. Am I missing one? I think you're correct. Um, he does eventually, if he's forced into position, 
with a lot of these law firms uh, negotiate some sort of uh, payment. Um, Steve Bannon is uh, simply thinks he's above any obligation to um, to pay and to honor his uh, debts. And um, yes, it does show you, you know, how far out there he is in ripping off the people who helped him, um, he's simply in it for himself. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that, well, they're not saying it's because of this lawsuit. They're not saying it's because Bannon doesn't pay his bills, but a different law firm that's currently representing him has actually uh, applied to the court to be allowed to quit. They 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 want to withdraw from the case. And I believe in the documents that they filed, they said it sounds like a divorce, Mark. They cited irreconcilable differences. Um, that's the bad thing about not paying your legal bills. Unless you're Donald Trump, it means lawyers don't want to represent you going forward because you don't pay your legal bills. And and also, too, it, I don't understand why this principle, which is pretty much accepted, doesn't seem to apply to Donald Trump. You know, I was reading a, a long time ago, I, a lawyer sort of wrote about the kind of lawyer that is still attracted to representing Donald Trump and he he came to the conclusion that they were either true believers or that they still felt that the name recognition bump you know you know how they say there's no bad publicity you know all publicity is good because it gets your name out there that the name recognition that they would get from being with Donald Trump would boost their careers when do you think the lawyers are going to wise up and and abandon Donald Trump? Or do you think the answer to that is never, Mark Carlin? I don't think it's never. There have been uh, reports of several law firms that won't represent him uh, for several reasons. But um, one of the reasons is that um, some law firms now, when they're approached by the Trump team to represent Trump, uh, the law firms say we want our money in advance. You know, we 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 aren't going to wait to send in the bill. We want money on the table in order to represent Trump, and he's he's lost representation because of it because he won't pay in advance. And um, I, I I think that Steve Bannon and Donald Trump yeah, are going to continue to mount up massive legal bills as these indictments start to come down. Well, and Donald Trump just doesn't it it doesn't even stop at his reluctance to pay his lawyers by all accounts. He won't listen to them. There was you know, you talk about getting payment up front. I was reading that one of the lawyers he hired uh, to represent him in this whole Mar-a-Lago documents mess demanded a three million dollar payment up front, just like you said, Mark, got it. And then still um, found was privately, not publicly, but privately telling friends how incredibly frustrated he was because Trump wasn't doing any of the things the lawyer told him to do. Trump was not following his advice 
at all. And he's also famous for that, isn't he? Absolutely. And it is very frustrating, I think, to a lot of lawyers who aren't necessarily partisan. Um, But uh, the kind of lawyers Trump uses and Bannon are lawyers who charge, you know, six, seven hundred, a thousand dollars an hour. And um, they expect that their clients will be somewhat deferential to legal advice. You know, there may be some negotiations, but, you know, Donald Trump is notorious for um, having it his own way. And if he doesn't like uh, the way that his uh, legal team, whatever time it is or whatever case is proceeding, you know, he'll make it known publicly. And that's embarrassing to lawyers. Yeah. One other story on uh, the buzzflash.com website that I want you to weigh in on before we wrap this up. You have a story about Kyle Rittenhouse, who seems to be the young man who simply will not go away. But I didn't I didn't realize that he was still involved in litigation and basically begging for money to help pay for lawyers. Talk about that, Mark. Yeah, well, I'm sure he has a GoFundMe page that a lot of right-wingers are, um, you know, contributing to. But, yeah, I remember this was a kid who was 17 when he killed three people and became a hero to the right wing. But he's got a lot. He still has a lot of legal issues, even though he wasn't convicted of murder. Um, and uh, there's also the civil suits. Um He's not protected uh, because he wasn't convicted from civil suits. And there are suits about uh, how he obtained the arms and so forth. And uh, the Republicans do whine a lot about um, being owed money, you know, when they are nationally saying that the United States has to live within its means and not raise the debt level. Um, the Republicans seem to, um, many of them seem to spend rather prodigiously and, uh, don't suffer any consequences. It's very hard to think of Kyle in the house, um, to feel pity for him. Yeah, I would, I would go so far as to say from my standpoint, it's just about impossible to feel, to feel pity for him. And, you know, I would Maybe, you know, I mean, when this whole trial was over and and all was said and done, you know, and he was just like, you know, I'm going to I want to change the way I look and maybe change my name. And I just want to go back to living a quiet life and and, you know, do some of the things like become a nurse like I had hoped to do before. And I was thinking to myself, okay, well, you know, maybe all is not lost with this kid. And then all of a sudden he seems to become a Fox News darling. And, uh, you know, you see him on Newsmax, you see him on Fox. Um, and it was just like, oh, Kyle, you know, I'm really sorry to see this, you know, and this was even it seemingly before he needed money. And um, it just was it, it's such a unpleasant situation all the way around. Uh, do you think uh, when do you think this will wrap up? Do you think it'll wrap up when this a civil lawsuit is finally concluded? I, I think he's become a celebrity. Uh, he's a go-to person for the right-wing news 
uh, sites on uh, the web and the television programs. And I'm sure that some right-wing organization will hire him as a spokesperson, maybe Turning Point, which is um, a a right-wing nonprofit that um, appeals to young right-wing Republicans. And they might send Kyle Rittenhouse around as a celebrity spokesperson. Uh, much of our politics today is based on being coming a celebrity, and there's money in that. And I think Kyle Rittenhouse has figured that out. I guess. I guess. Anyway, Mark Carlin, it is always a delight to talk to you. And um, those of you, who, if you care to listen to this station you should bookmark buzzflash.com on your computer. It is always a really interesting assortment of articles, and it's uh, probably there's going to be a few there that you missed and uh, you will find fascinating. Mr. Carlin, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Joan. Always my pleasure. Uh, we are going to take a break and... Uh, We are going to be talking to another one of the candidates who would like to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. Roderick Sawyer, Alderman Roderick Sawyer, is going to join us for the entire hour, four to five. So since we have a lot of time, unlike our first interview that we started the show with today, we are going to open the phone lines, not simply to texts, but also to calls. Join us for that conversation right after this. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive on WCPT 820. In uh, just a few minutes, we are going to be talking with Alderman Roderick Sawyer, who wants to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago for, I think, Over a decade, he has represented the sixth ward in Chicago. We are going to be taking your calls while we have this conversation. So uh, jot down that phone number, 773-763-9278. And uh, we started off the day from 2.30 to 3, uh, talking to... The current mayor, Lori Lightfoot, who told us, among other things, that she is going to beat Paul Vallis. She is going to send him back into permanent retirement. Um, uh, some of you were really enjoying the conversation I had with Lori Lightfoot. Some of you were frustrated that I didn't get to your particular question. Um, also, too, I have to say that I guess... You know, when you've been in office for four years, one thing that you get really good at is honing your message. Um, I asked her a lot of the questions that you wanted me to ask her, some that I thought were really important. And um, she didn't yell at me. She didn't. She, she got a little emotional, but it wasn't anything negative uh, directed at me particularly, which, frankly, I found a little surprising. Um, I don't know if you watched the live stream of our mayoral debate, our mayoral forum that we did January 26th. But uh, somebody said to me later, because, you know, um, I was standing right next to the mayor 
And they said, you know, it was really weird. The mayor kind of seemed to be muttering a lot. And I said she wasn't muttering. (laughs) She was talking to me. Uh, You know, she was very frustrated when the forum first started because we set up some rules that we were going to ask a question. We were going to give each candidate a certain amount of time to answer. And only if that answer named another candidate were they going to be given time to rebut. And, um, you know, Chewy Garcia tried to get around it by saying, you know, da-da-da-da-da, and she, and I gave Lori Lightfoot a rebuttal time for that, and Chewy was like, I didn't say her name, and I was like, come on, there's only one woman up here, and you just referred to she, the mayor is a she, we know who you meant, Chewy. And she was allowed to rebut, but she felt that any reference to the city of Chicago was really a reference to her. So people would say, well, you know, um, this is what I want to change about the city. This is the way the city does this now. And she'd be like, she would start to jump in. And I was like, no, um, you, know, you are not the city of Chicago. You can only rebut when you are named by your pronouns or by your or by your name. And she was very frustrated by that. So as the forum continued, all of the rebuttals that she wanted to give to the audience, radio audience and the live audience, she was sharing quietly with me. She would turn to me and she would say, well, you know, that's not true. That's not when we did it. That's not how it happened. It's just not true. And after a while, I, I didn't do this. I just kind of looked at her and nodded. But I felt like saying, why are you doing this? Neither of us has a hot mic. You know, (laughs) I'm trying to concentrate on my job and and listening to answers and where I need to go next and how much time we've got. Um, But it was um, I think it was a frustrating experience for the mayor. And uh, one thing that I talked to her about and that we have talked about on this show, the. um all the polls, you know, what, no matter who, what rank they put the candidates in, every poll I've seen has a surprisingly anywhere from 15 to 25 percent undecided. And when you've got nine people in the race, that's enough to swing the race to any candidate. If any candidate can figure out in these last days how to capture those undecided voters, then they will make sure they are in the runoff. The uh, common wisdom at this point in time is that the only person who we are most likely, who seems to be a sure bet to make it into the runoff, is Paul Vallis. Because um, most of the independent polls show that he is, uh, he is the front runner in this race. Eric Zorn on Tuesday published a poll that was done by an independent organization where, you know, it was one of those polls where they pair the people up. Like if Lori Lightfoot were up against Chewy Garcia, if Chewy Garcia was up against Brandon Johnson, all those different pairings. And the conclusion was, uh, Paul Vallis beats all of them in those, head-to-head races. 
There are a lot of progressives who do not want to see Paul Vallis elected the next mayor of the city of Chicago. A lot of progressives are putting out a message that is boils down to guys, anybody but Paul, anybody but Paul, vote for anybody but Paul Vallis. So the front runners, Brandon Johnson, Chewy Garcia, Lori Lightfoot. Today's issue of the Picayune Sentinel, Eric Zorn wrote that he and his wife went to vote Tuesday of this week. They, they took advantage of early voting. On the way to the polling place, as they are driving to the polling place, Eric still hadn't decided who he was going to vote for. It was, it's, that is where we are right now. People have said to me, you know, after the forum, you know, what did you think? And I said, I think that um, in this round, Chicago has an embarrassment of riches. There are a number of candidates who I think would make a good mayor. Sophia King never, her candidacy never really got traction. She never got a lot of endorsements. She never got a lot of money. But she's an incredibly impressive woman. This is a woman who needs to do something politically, whether that's run for state office or what, I don't know. But she is tremendously smart, uh, and she is tremendously experienced. She would have made a great mayor, but it doesn't look like she is going to make it into the runoff. Cam Buckner, very impressive, very impressive. He's one of the people in this race who didn't have to give up his other job as a state rep to run for mayor. Uh, Sophia King and Roderick Sawyer both had to walk away from their jobs as older people to run for mayor. Um, Whatever Sophia King's next step is, she's going to be really, really impressive. So today, Eric Zorn writes about all of this stuff going through his mind as he is driving to the polling place. I want to share some of his thoughts with you. He's getting ready. Um, They actually may have already gone. They're going uh, down to Savannah, and they won't be around for the election. But um, Jamal Green, Eric Zorn says he's got the makings of a future star in the Democratic Party. But... Like a lot of people, a lot of people feel that his work as a community activist makes his resume a little short for being elected mayor. He's 27 years old, um, but he, you know, he's a family man, got three kids. It's not like he's um, an immature 27-year-old. So he's probably somebody we are going to hear a lot of in the years to come. Cam Buckner, as I said, also doesn't seem to be one of the front runners at this point. I think he's a tremendous uh, legislator and politician. He is going to continue on after this race, most likely in his position as state representative. Uh, Roderick Sawyer and Sophia King, uh, who knows uh, what they're going to do. Eric agreed with me, by the way, about Sophia King. This is what he wrote today. Alderman Sophia King of the Fourth Ward would make an excellent mayor. Her approach to public safety is in the middle ground between Willie Wilson and Brandon Johnson. Willie Wilson's law and order hunt them down like a rabbit and Brandon Johnson's treatment, not trauma uh, and fewer police officers. 
He says King is a politician who can bridge the city's ethnic and ideological divides. And I think that is an incredibly accurate take on that. So Eric Zorn said, you know, he doesn't like uh, Paul Vallis is too far right for him. So since it looks like Paul Vallis is going to be in the runoff, Eric wants to vote for the person that is best suited to go up against Paul Vallis. Is it Mayor Lori Lightfoot? Is it Brandon Johnson? Is it Chewy Garcia? Well, he talks about the pros and cons of all of them. He says for about Mayor Lightfoot that um, many of the things that she's achieved are very laudable, but basically what he says is he's tired of her getting in her own way. He's tired of her abrasiveness. He also doesn't really think that her attack ads on Chewy Garcia have been very honest. Brandon Johnson, very charismatic. We all agree he's incredibly charismatic. But Eric, like a lot of people, is a little concerned with Brandon Johnson's relationship with the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, He said, quote, as much as I'm a fan of unions and a fan of teachers, I'm uneasy with the CTU being essentially on both sides of the bargaining table at contract time should Johnson be elected. And he said, I suspect his views on police funding are not right for the political moment. He says that left Democratic U.S. Congressman Chewy Garcia, who has run a humdrum campaign, much as he did in 2015, when he uh, went up against Rahm Emanuel. He says, I don't care that he got money from the crypto crook Samuel Bankman Freed. Um, I don't believe uh, the other accusations of corruption that have come his way. But he said, I am bothered by his uninspiring, weak sauce, anodyne, evasive answers to questions. He described Chewy Garcia as mealy-mouthed. And yet, that is who he is voting for. That's who Eric Zorn wrote to us and said he was voting for Chewy Garcia. He thinks Chewy Garcia, as he said, I backed Garcia, but not with any gusto. Do not consider this an endorsement, but rather a resigned admission. He thinks that Garcia has the best shot of going up against Vallis. Though, again, in the poll that he published in his own newsletter, each candidate going up against Vallis loses to Vallis. Going to be a very, very interesting election night. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Um, We're having a little bit of problems connecting with Alderman uh, Roderick Sawyer. Apparently... Um, we have uh, a bad phone number. So, Alderman Sawyer, if you are listening, please call in on the warm line. That is a line that will take you directly to the studio, and uh, Lady B will be there eagerly awaiting your call. 
Um, I was just getting ready in that break and uh, to check uh, the text line. Um, as far as questions, you know, a lot of the questions that you have texted in, and I know for the mayor, a lot of you were frustrated that I didn't get uh, to your questions. I've noticed that a lot of the text questions are very, very, very specific. Like uh, one woman texted in uh, something about uh, the city closing a parking lot near her house and what was going on with that. You know, uh, while I appreciate that that can bring an incredible level of frustration, uh, I'm not necessarily sure that that is uh, the best use of our time here uh, at WCPT. So for some of you, the reason that I didn't ask your questions is that the questions were just a little bit too specific. Um, but there were, you know, there was so much, there was so much to talk about. We had 30 minutes and, um, uh, you know, any experienced politician knows how to turn any question into basically a, a campaign statement. Uh, Mayor Lightfoot was very good at that. I um, tried to kind of break through by asking her, you know, specific things. You know, all of your opponents want to get rid of Superintendent David Brown and raise up somebody from the ranks. And, you know, it's like, oh, it's easy to say off with his head. That's just a, an easy, shallow solution. And... um so it's really hard with an experienced pol- politician to try to get them to really uh, say something meaningful. I, I think probably one of the most emphatic things that came out of the interview was the fact that she is determined that she's going to be the one to take on Paul Vallis, that she's going to be the one to defeat Paul Vallis. And um, I don't know. Um, a lot of the feedback that I'm getting from you, the listener, doesn't agree with that. You know, remember, she did something extraordinary when she ran for mayor before. She won all 50 wards. That almost virtually never happens. And now she is struggling to such a degree that she might not even make it into the runoff. As I said, there are a large number of voters who are describing themselves as undecided And that is the voter pool that each and every one of the nine candidates needs to try to win over. I think we finally got Alderman Roderick Sawyer. We got everything squared away. Uh, Alderman Sawyer, thank you so much for joining us. No problem, Joan. Glad to be here. So let me start off with what I was just talking about. This Mm-hmm. This l- pool of undecided voters is big enough to put anybody, any any one of you nine candidates, over the top. So how do you get those people? You get those people by, you know, you know, telling your truth, first of all. You know, telling what you really believe in. You know, how did you make the city better? What your commitment to the city is. Uh, that's what I do when I talk to individuals uh, one by one or in small groups or in large groups. I don't, I don't tell them things that they want to hear. I tell them the truth. I tell them about, you know, how great this city is, but we have challenges and how to deal with those challenges. And I think that I'm the one that has the vision and the experience to do that. It has been very difficult with a field of nine for everybody 
to get the kind of financing and endorsements they need to move up in the race. Um, where do things stand with you along those lines right now? Well, uh, financing, I, I am obviously, you've seen the, the, the printouts. I, I don't have a lot of money, and I have not been able to raise a lot of money. I had commitments on the front end that, that bailed once I, um, I injured myself early in the season, and a lot of people didn't think I was going to ultimately run at all, but I, I feel great. I feel much, much better. Um, you know, I'm out here every day, and I'm, I'm pushing my truth, and I'm pushing my, my vision and experience and my ability to get things done, and not my proven ability to get things done on the city council floor, and I can continue that as mayor. You have been alderman of the 6th Ward, I believe it is, for 12 years now? That's correct. I had this conversation with uh, Raymond Lopez when he first Mm -hmm. announced that he was going to run for mayor, and uh, he and I have known each other a long time. I consider us friendly, if not friends. And my my comment to him was, why on earth would you give up the perfectly good job of being an alderman where you've had success, where you seem to be happy to run for mayor of the city of Chicago? Roderick, I ask you the same thing. You know, Joan, I, I love what I do. I love helping people. I love being in the community where I was born and raised. But I felt that my city needed more and deserved more, and I want to make sure that I, I you know, can be a part of that conversation on, on you know, what the 21st century Chicago is supposed to look like. Look, Joan, I, I, you know, I love what I do, but I was never going to stay in this position forever. Um, I wanted to make sure that others had an opportunity to serve in public service like I've had the opportunity to serve. But this should not be a lifetime position. It's not guaranteed to me. And quite honestly, uh, in good times, or if I would have had a better time, I might have tried to stay one more term, but that would have been it. Uh, but uh, obviously, this was a challenging period uh, these last four years uh, dealing with the current administration. And I felt that it was time for me to go. But at the same time, I felt that I can do more, that, that I can, you know, I still had a lot to offer the city. And I wanted to make sure that I presented myself and offered myself to the city because Again, I, I've had great experiences on the city council floor. I've been a part and led in some transformative legislation that has benefited the city. And I think that this is, a, you know, I am the type of leader that Chicago needs to go forward. And I saw what the differences are between the current administration and quite honestly, even the last administration and myself. I think I'm much more collaborative. I think that I, I have good relationships with everyone, not just on the city council floor, but in uh, state, county, and federal uh, electeds as well. I have that relationship. I have the ability to get things done, and I wanted to avail myself to the city of Chicago because uh, I think they need a real, true public servant to do the job. We are talking to 6th Ward Alderman Roderick Sawyer. He is running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. He will be on your ballot February 28th. If you live in the city of Chicago, we're going to continue our discussion right after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
We are talking to mayoral candidate and sixth ward alderman Roderick Sawyer. Um, Mr. Sawyer, you are going to be at the hideout tonight for a um, um, what they're calling a mayoral madness live event. Uh, (laughs) What what is going to be when you have the floor to give that live audience your message, whether it's a minute that they give you or a minute and a half? What is it that you're going to say to those folks? Well, again, I'm going to tell them what I believe is the future of Chicago and how we can all be a part of it and how we can all benefit from it. So I want the people to know that, you know, what I do, I do, you know, in sincerity. I do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. When I, I commit to something, I commit to it in full. So, you know, I'm up for the task. I'm ready to go. And I hear it's going to be a little wacky. So uh, <laughs> I will be... uh as engaging as I can be, but at the same time trying to give some good information. But, of course, uh, I can go along with the fun. I'm as fun as anybody. You know, uh, there have been a number of sources uh, that commenting on this mayor's race that have said there are too many African-Americans in uh, the race, that the vote, the African-American vote, is going to be diluted to the point where we might not have an African-American mayor, but rather a white mayor, Paul Vallis, or a Hispanic mayor, Chewy Garcia. As a matter of fact, um, Reverend Dr. Willie Wilson even took Indigo Magazine to task for saying that they were saying there were too many African-Americans in the race and that everybody should get behind one candidate. Have you been approached by any of the other folks in the race with an offer, you know, um, support my candidacy and, you know, um, give me a better chance to win this? Are you worried about that? Um, no, I'm not. You know what? I'm not worried about that. And I, I consider that a false narrative. I, I don't like that. We're still doing things that we were doing 40 years ago. And I, I thought we were progressing much further than that. If I see someone not doing their job, I think it's my responsibility and my obligation to stand up and say something about it. And sometimes necessary to pick up a pen and get petition signed and run for that office in, in opposition to that person. doesn't mean I don't, I don't like that person. I, I dislike him or anything. It's just that my political views differ from them. Now, just the fact that six other black candidates had that same idea in mind means that we're no longer considered a monolith. We have different opinions just because we're black. Don't mean we all think the same. So I I reject that as a false narrative, and I further condemn the statements made by both the Hermine Hartman and uh, Mayor Lightfoot in saying that vote or, you know, vote for me or don't vote. You know, that's classic voter suppression. You know, Mm -hmm. I think just the opposite. Vote whether you vote for me or not, but vote. I'd rather you vote than just vote for me. Obviously, I want that vote, but I want you to exercise that franchise and participate. So anything that you say that discourages participation, you're not a true Chicagoan. You're not you're not really in favor of people, you know, uh, casting opinions. You just want to win at all costs. And that's what I will not do. And I do not do that. I was not raised that way. The flip side of that coin, which I've also heard people say, uh, is that because Chicago is now a majority black and brown city, that a white person uh, will couldn't will never be elected mayor or couldn't be elected mayor this time around. That's sort of the opposite side of the coin we've just talked about. Do you think there's any truth in that? This is the challenge. And I'll put the challenge on to every Chicagoan here, and I'll say it in one word: vote. 
when we're voting at a 30% clip, anything can happen. If you really truly want uh, true equity in this city, and since this city is two-thirds black and brown, how about that two-thirds black and brown vote at a 90-plus percent clip? That's what we should be doing. That's what we should be concentrating on instead of there are too many candidates in the race or you're going to split a vote, black vote or Latino vote. Let's all vote and let's count the votes honestly, but let's get involved. Let's stop complaining and, and get, into, you know, get, in the, get in the game. Let's do this, and then we can defeat all those false narratives about uh, whether the, the ones that you just said about, you know, too many blacks in the race or on the opposite, uh, the city is two thirds black and brown. We can show that by exercising that franchise voting and we can vote for the candidate of a choice and let's do this. So I, I put that challenge to every Chicagoan out there that's listening. When she faced Tony Preckwinkle in the runoff for the uh, previous mayor's race, Lori Lightfoot won all 50 wards in the city of Chicago. Now by most estimates people don't think she will even make it into the runoff this time around why do you see that happening she has the power of the incumbency why do you see her in such a deep hole right now well even though i I don't like to waste time talking about other candidates beside myself since i'm in the race but i'll I'll humor you on this one this is a incident where you know people see what they see you know you see leadership that has gone off hinges far too many times. Uh, you see uh, an opinion one day on something, you see another opinion the next day on the same thing, which would be different. Uh, Chicago deserves consistency and someone that has a calm, soothing demeanor, but at the same time, a strong voice and will advocate for the citizens of Chicago. That's what we need here in Chicago. Uh, and that's what they did not see in the current administration with the current mayor. And I think that uh, that's why so many people are deciding to get involved in this race, because they saw and they were disappointed in the leadership that was exhibited by the current mayor. Like all the other candidates for mayor, I know that you have said that uh, Superintendent David, Chicago Police Superintendent David Brown has to go. Talk about tell us one facet of your public safety program or how you would make policing better and more equitable for the city of Chicago? Uh, well, Joan, I think I've already done that in, in being the chief sponsor and, and leader in the Empowering Communities for Public Safety Ordinance, which we have now and will be voting on in up, also in this upcoming election. We now will be voting for community commissioners that will have that direct connection with the police and the community. Also, uh, they in turn vote for a citywide commission, which has direct contact with the superintendent and also makes choices uh, for new superintendents uh, to be uh, selected by the, the incoming mayor. So this is something that I've started doing already. This is something I have worked on for seven years and glad to have finally got it implemented. And quite honestly, worked on that with the support of candidate Lightford, Mayor Lightford, on the other hand, fought it every step of the way where it took us two and a half years during her administration to pass something that she said she was going to pass in the first hundred days. What changed? Was there something about the bill you'd written up that no longer appealed? Actually, our bill came out even stronger because we, uh, I was working with a group called GAPA and then a group called CPAC. We got together and made it even stronger ordinance. And we worked day and night for years together in making sure that we had the most forward-thinking, the most advanced ordinance in public safety in the country right now. 
that's what we have in Chicago. And I was proud to bring that to, to the city of Chicago. We are talking with six ward alderman Roderick Sawyer. He is going to be on the ballot this coming Tuesday to uh, be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. We are going to take a break and be back with more right after this. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with mayoral candidate Roderick Sawyer. He has been the older person for the sixth ward for 12 years now. And I know uh, one of the issues that uh, you have really done a deep dive into and have ideas about is public transportation, how to expand it, how to make it more safe. Talk about that, if you wouldn't mind, Roderick. A couple of things. Obviously, all of us want clean, safe, reliable transportation. Uh, but we have to make sure that the experience is, is, is such that people want to return and get it on a daily basis. It's far too important for our environment, for business operations, for, you know, everything to have a viable transportation system. But this is how we do it. Safety, we can do a couple of things. One, obviously we should cancel the contract that has the the dogs and, and the, the unarmed people with the dogs on the trains. We need to return with armed security or police on the trains. One of the ways we can do that is currently we have about a couple of hundred officers at airports right now, and they're on the periphery. They're on usually on the outside just hanging around, uh, conducting traffic, things like that. We can remove them, replace them, and of the extra officers that we have, we can allocate them towards uh, CTA. Uh, obviously, we need to work with the unions uh, as, as with safety, uh, cleanliness is concerned. I, every forum that I've been to, I've heard them two words far too often, urine and weed. You know, that's what the public transportation is like. We have to do better in making sure that it's it's clean and it's fresh, and we have people there all the time, particularly on the rail lines, making sure that's done. Uh, and reliability. Reliability, we have a bus and train tracker system that far too often does not work. We need to make sure with, with the advent of technology, if a train says it's supposed to be there at 5.11 p.m., it should be there at 5.11 p.m. or give an indication on that tracker that it's going to be two minutes late or three minutes late. These are things that are common sense things that we have to do to make the experience better for those that take public transportation. The CTA, as well as O'Hare, uh, have both of those pl- locations have also become a s- sort of shelters. Um, I've yes. heard from a lot of my friends who uh, take public transportation, and uh, they always say, you know, if if they have to take like a really early train in the morning, mm-hmm. dollars to donuts, uh, there'll be somebody on the bus or on the train just in back with all their possessions, fast asleep. Um, that seems like a pretty poor solution to the problem of the unhoused. How would you fix that? Yes. Well, look, my, uh, this is not a new problem, but it, it's obviously exacerbated because of COVID and other, other things, obviously. Uh, my sister served as, as a commissioner at Family Support Services some years ago, and she uh, used to tell me about this problem and how we need to do better at dealing with our unhoused. And it's not just putting them in shelters. Shelter is another archaic 
thing that the city of Chicago still does. We still have the same types of shelters that we had at the turn of the last century, not this, not the 21st century, the turn of the 20th century. Uh, we need to really dive down and find out how we can really help our unhoused. And not, I mean, it's, it's, it's in addition to the obvious answer in finding housing, you know, because when someone's experiencing unhoused uh, homelessness like we're de- dealing with right now, we have to de- dive deeper into what's going on. Is it a social emotional issue? Do you need some counseling? Do you need assistance in other things besides housing uh, to make this person whole again? These people are hurt, and I deal with them on a daily basis. A lot of alders do. And every time that we come up to them and ask them about getting help, can we, how much kind of help we give, they refuse almost every time. So we're going to have to take a really deeper dive, and it's not just throwing money on top of the problem. Money's not going to solve the problem in and of itself. That's why a lot of people think that, you know, if you, you do this thing and we collect all this money, this will solve homelessness. No, it won't. You know, ask, talk to a homeless person one day, and they really will tell you uh, that their problems are deeper than just being unhoused. Uh, they don't like going into some of these shelters that we have now. They'd rather be under a viaduct or lower whacker because at least they feel that they're part of a community. And this is what they've told us many times when we talk to them. Is there one I know you've done like a thousand forums and a million interviews since you've been in this race. But is there one issue or program or policy that nobody's asked you about and you would really like to talk about or pretty much have all the bases been covered? Or is there something, you know, that you're frustrated, you know, every time they never ask me about X. One thing, uh, two things, actually, and and I think we talked a little bit more about them. And one is older persons. You know, we we normally call seniors, but I've I've learned that the preferred term is older persons now. (laughs) Or as I, in my case, I call myself just an old fart, but go ahead. I just call me, just me, right? I I laugh because I'm I'm two months out of 60, so I, 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 I feel it. I understand it. And, and I'm getting it on a personal level now, but I don't think we talk about it enough. And the other thing that we don't talk about is, and it's, because it's not exciting and sexy, but government operation. Government operation is the key to what our problems are here in the city of Chicago, because we're still operating on, again, an archaic system of government, even though this is the 21st century. We need to do better on all levels of government operation so that we can serve everybody in Chicago, not just a few. And that's part of, Joan, that's part of a long conversation. But I think you've had Joe Ferguson on your show before, or at least yeah. saw what he's been doing with Reimagine Chicago. I'm a big supporter of that. I think that this is the way we need to go to reset Chicago, which is actually where I got my, my hashtag from on my campaign, was having a breakfast meeting with Joe Ferguson several months ago. Uh, and that's what really popped in my head when we were talking back and forth about how government operations are so bad. Uh, and they're steeped in, in archaic um, forms of government. We're still talking about the bossism under the turn of the century that we're still operating under. Uh, many mayors were still called instead of legislators, which we're truly supposed to be called. Mm-hmm. And it's really a deep dive, but Joe Ferguson does a really great job. At, and I would suggest your listeners to look into Reimagine Chicago, his website, and look at what he's doing. And this is what I would work with uh, day one under the administration uh, once I'm elected mayor. And it is a population that's growing and is going to be continuing to grow for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. That's correct. 
So it's going to be whatever problems there are now. Uh, if they don't get fixed, they're only going to get worse. Um, we got to fix them now. We cannot wait any longer. We have to fix them now. Real quick, um, my listeners always want to know about some real specific things. Um, you know, what do you think about the NASCAR deal? And what do you think about uh, the casino that's coming in? Uh, what do you think about those NASCAR two things? We'll deal, start there. Bad deal. Um, NASCAR deal, bad deal. And I'm, I'm a race car fan. I, I like race car driving as much as the next person. But I, I think that we got shortchanged on that deal. There was no involvement, uh, particularly around the residents in those affected areas. Uh, I had an opportunity to speak with a couple of groups over there. They are extremely upset because there was no engagement by the administration uh, as to what they're going to do for those two weeks that they're going to be isolated, basically, uh, because of the uh, the NASCAR events. Uh, casino, same issue. Engagement. You have to talk to these people. Uh, you have to talk to the individuals that are being directly affected by what's going on in their neighborhood. They feel that they're getting a short end of this, and uh, it is something that, that is problematic because they feel that the lack of engagement led to the decision that was made. And we, as alders, we obviously rely upon the, the home ward where it's located and the home alderman had supported it fully. And, you know, we, uh, based on that recommendation, we, you know, supported him in that endeavor, but come to find out shortly thereafter that the individuals, more and more individuals in those affected areas do not like it. And we should have had much more engagement. We didn't have to rush this project. It was going to happen. We just make sure that it happens the right way. Earlier today, I was talking to Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and she said that she's going to do an all-out full press to keep the Chicago Bears at Soldier Field. As mayor, what would you do on that? Well, I, I wouldn't have uh, disparaged them in the first con- last conversation before you said that. Uh, I think that, again, uh, the way that you uh, engage with individuals is going to dictate how the outcome. And that outcome was quick. They immediately, right after that conversation, where, you know, she had some disparaging words toward them about, you know, getting a better team and all the other things that she said, they immediately went looking at Arlington Heights. And we know that's not that's that's the worst kept secret in the world. They've been looking at Arlington Heights for decades. But uh, here's the problem. Soldier Field is too small. Soldier Field is about 20, maybe even 30,000 uh, short of what it should be with the smallest stadium in the league. And it's not owned by the Bears. So uh, it's actually quite prudent for the Bears to look to have their own team. I'm, I'm upset and I'm, I'm not happy because I'm a Bears fan and want them to stay in Chicago. But um, if you're getting pushed, you know, sometimes if you're getting pushed, you're just going to go in that direction. And they went in that direction in response of the, of the negative attention they were, seeking, were getting based on the mayor's uh, comments. So I, I'm upset that they're going, but I do understand why they're going. I don't know if any additional push that we can do will save them short of, of attaching, attaching 30,000 people and a dome on Soldier Field, which I don't see feasible. But, um, you know, I, I, I would support her in her endeavors if she's successful. God bless her. Uh, I, I, but I, I, don't, I don't see them coming back. If you do not make it into the runoff, where do you go from here? Well, I'll continue to find a way to serve Chicago. I mean, I've been a lawyer for 33 years. I've, I've had other licenses that, that I can benefit from. But uh, my true calling is, is being a public servant in some type of way. Uh, maybe in this time, not an elected public servant. Maybe I'll do some volunteer work or 
sit on a board or I don't, I don't know what I'm doing, but right now my, my total focus is running for mayor of the city of Chicago and I'm running a hundred, hundred miles an hour with all gas, no brakes in that direction. <laughs> and after that happens, after that happens, I'll find it. I, I think I'll be okay, but you know, but uh, I'm all my concentration, all my efforts is on this right now, but March 1st, uh, hopefully that I, I'm, I'm successful and, and at least make it further. And if not, I'll figure out what I'll do with my wife and family and, and, you know, we'll, we'll work it out. I'll be okay. We'll have some fun at the hideout tonight. I don't know uh, what exactly they have planned, but I don't think it's going to be business as usual. So um, Alderman Roderick Sawyer is going to be at the hideout tonight. Uh, it's uh, the tickets are gone. As a matter of fact, I saw them announced today that even though you've registered, it's going to be first come, first serve. And there are more people registered than will fit. So if you really uh, want to see these candidates, uh, I'd get over there sooner rather than later to to snag a seat. Alderman uh, Sawyer, thank you so much for joining us. I wish you luck on Tuesday. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. That's going to do it for me. Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is next. Santita will be here tomorrow at 6 a.m., I will see you tomorrow at 2. Until then, have a great evening. Stay safe, my friends. Good night.